0: The City's Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this current events roundtable is my normal co-host, Oh, you always don't like it when I use the term normal, um, <laughs> my usual co-host, there we go. the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet, and a guy who's been on the show before, but it's been way too long, the Editor-in-Chief of USNI News, Sam LeGrone.
1: Sam, welcome to Studio C. Hey, gang. All right, we're going to just uh, do a, a little news roundup, because uh, as you said, Ward, it's been a while since we've had Sam on the show, and USNI News has been hot on the trail of a number of stories lately, um, and uh, I thought we'd talk start off talking about what's happening with Iran. So
2: what is happening with Iran? Um, so right now, uh, there are more. Um, our uh, stalwart colleague, uh, Ben Werner, had a piece actually, uh, I think just yesterday, about there is more U.S. Navy personnel in Iran, about 20 29,000-ish, than there are in uh, uh, 7th Fleet right now.
1: You mean in CENTCOM?
2: Uh, it, I'm sorry. Yeah, in CENTCOM. Not I'm in sorry, Iran. Not, uh, you're, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're in Iran? No, <laughs> That's no, that, breaking news. That, my, my bad. That's uh, breaking I moves. meant, I meant uh, U.S. Central Command, uh, uh, NAVCENT, 5th Fleet, yep. uh, around Iran, in the proximity of Iran, than there are in um, 7th the Fleet in the Western Pacific yeah. right now, which is um, – kind of staggering if you think if we are now living in the age of great power competition and china and russia are big competitors um the middle east actually before we got into this uh, situation back in april i guess starting in eh, actually technically starting in november when uh the u.s kind of stepped away from the iran deal and reimposed sanctions and then in april you had the irgc declared a terrorist organization and then um, in and IRGC for the folks oh, at home, Republican Guard. Sure, right. Yeah. So the Iranian military uh, comes in two flavors. You have the more traditional um, Iranian military forces, uh, which is the regular Iranian army and navy. You know, sort of how we think of a uh, uh, military force. And then there is also the um, uh, Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, which reports directly to the Supreme Leader, uh, the Ayatollah in Iran. And so that is on a separate chain, separate C2, and since I want to say the last five or six years, they've been in charge of uh, Iranian coastal security and then security in the Strait of Hormuz. So they're they're a completely separate military entity from uh, the regular Iranian military. And then,
0: so if this was Star Wars episode, whatever, they'd be the guys in the long red robes.
2: Yeah, yeah. There you go. I think that makes a lot of sense. They're not uh, regular Imperials. Uh, they're they're whoever the guys in the red robes are. Yeah. So that's that's who the IRGC are. Uh, are. Direct
1: reports to Palpatine. So, so so once again, the Pacific pivot or the pivot to the Pacific uh, gets interrupted by events in the Middle East. These pesky current events. Yes.
2: I uh, I think so. Uh, how much of this is sort of generated? Uh, This time out of Washington versus, you know, previous instances is, you know, it is is for the historians to determine. However, what we do know is um, a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, sort of the tensions now uh, with the Trump administration's stance towards uh, uh, Iran vis-a-vis how we're treating them post uh, the U.S. exiting the the, uh, nuclear deal that was reached at um, back in 2015, so November we step out of the deal. Sorry, this is this is kind of a longer windup, but the uh, you know there's a lot of moving pieces here. So yeah, there definitely uh, are. 20 uh, November uh, we we step out of the deal. Sanctions are reimposed on Iran. Uh, in April, the U.S. declares the IRGC, which is the sectarian military arm inside Iran, de- declares them a terrorist organization. Um, against the recommendations reportedly of uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, uh, and the Pentagon. Then in May, based on credible evidence, uh, and the Wall Street Journal had some good stories on this, the Iranians were developing um, a kind of a covert uh, m- cruise missile launching system from uh, just a regular Iranian fishing dhow. So you would have a, kind of a just a a gray zone war asset it's essentially looks like a normal ship but in fact it could potentially launch a cruise missile based on that intelligence according to the wall street journal um the u.s significantly plussed up uh, the amount of troops it has there uh in in iran accelerating the deployment of the abraham uh yeah Yeah, lincoln Lincoln, lincoln lincoln went through the ditch early Uh, Now, as of uh, Monday, according to the USNI News, Fleet Tracker is uh, still operating in the Gulf of Oman. You had the Cure uh, amphibious ready group, which just chopped out uh, the boxer that just chopped in that's uh, hanging out in the Middle East right now. Uh, and so you have a lot of U.S. presence, uh, in addition to uh, Air Force B-52 squadron, uh, as part of this maximum pressure campaign.
0: And so are they at Sheikh Issa? Where the B-52s? Do we uh, know? I don't
2: know. I would guess they're either in Aldafra or— Diego um, Garcia? No, no, no. They're, they're closer Not than
1: that. Not at Diego. Okay. No.
2: I think they're probably closer than that um but uh i don't know for sure okay uh so you have uh the situation in and then in may you have this plus up of folks and then shortly after that you have um the bombing of four uh crude tankers that were carrying uh in the vicinity of UAE off uh, Fujairah that were carrying uh crude from UAE and uh the kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, and by unknown assailants, but highly likely, given the level of coordination and the weapons used, uh, was a state actor, probably either the IRGC or um, an equivalent uh, proxy uh, folks. Or, I'm sorry, equivalent po- proxy group like the Houthis or you know, pick one.
1: Yeah, and that happened at Anchorage in uh, Fujairah.
2: Three and th- one was at Anchorage, and three were in port. Gotcha. So so it was a pretty sophisticated operation. And then the Houthis took credit for uh, right around the same period um, uh, hitting some Saudi pipelines with, uh, we're not quite sure, or I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it was modified armed uh, drones. And that was in May. Then in early June, You had two cankers uh, carrying petrochemicals out of uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and UAE get attacked by uh, limpet mines on the move, which was really actually relatively sophisticated, another relatively sophisticated operation. Uh, And, you know, we are under the impression now as a news organization for a lot of the reporting we've done from a story that hopefully one day will eventually get written. It's been put off a few days uh, that. There's a really good circumstantial case that this is the IRGC, again, the sectarian arm of uh, the Iranian military, uh, sending a message to uh, potential buyers of their petrochemical uh, uh, output. Right. So the IRGC controls about 50 percent or so of like this is why this is this thing gets so complicated. And so there's no really good, simple explanation of like, well, why is this happening? Well, You know, uh, there's a petrochemical derivative known as naphtha, which is a kerosene type thing. And uh, under the U.S. sanctions, which were ambiguously written, the Iranians still were able to do like a business in that and not like come under the the range of the kind of sanctions. And, you know, estimates are up to 50 percent of the IRGC's operating revenue came from these petroleum derivatives. Um, And so these were bound for Asia. It's a Norwegian company, which is, um, you know, uh, organization. Norway still buys some Iranian petrochemicals. And then the other one was Japanese, which they also buy, you know, Iranian fuel products because they're not affected by the European uh, sanctions or uh, the European restrictions and then the U.S. sanctions uh, as much as some other people. So there's still a market there. But, you know, estimated that the Iranians lost anywhere from you know, $10 billion since the sanctions went to effect. So uh, the long, 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 long story short is that a lot of these attacks, from what we're seeing and we're talking to analysts, I mean, we're, we're mostly like ships and aircraft guys. So like, you know, intricacies of Middle East politics where you have to be more of a quicker study on is that a lot of these have to do with the economic realities going on in Iran and how the sanctions are affecting them. And a lot of these, you know, particular moves by Iran Particularly tar- targeting the the, the merchant, uh, petroleum and petrochemical industries, or a or signal saying like, "Hey, don't buy from Saudi Arabia or UAE. Buy from us. And if you're not going to buy from us, you're not going to buy from anyone." Yeah. So that's the that's sort of the message of where this attacks are, and it gets even more muddied because uh, last week was it last week when the yeah the last week. Uh, um, an old uh, U.S. Navy RQ-4A Global Hawk, uh, part of the... Uh, Bro- uh, Broad
1: Area Maritime Surveillance Program, de- right? BAMS- Demonstrator, G- right? Demonstrator, Demonstrator, yeah.
2: BAMSD. So this was a program that we wrote a lot about, actually about 10 years ago, or when I was uh, when I was still at Jane's. Uh, we wrote a lot about BAMSD, and it was a program the Navy liked so much Uh, after they tested it out in u.s central command they never let them left so it's uh it's an operationalized uh they had five of them one of them crashed actually about four or five years ago in the chesapeake and then they had four of them and they were just kind of in a rotation in and out of um uh centcom and uh, the navy loved them they they provided like uh, again broad area surveillance so like when uh, ships went in and out of uh, the Persian Gulf. They were right there uh, to provide a lot of uh, domain awareness for folks on the ground there, and like the Navy loved it. It's like it was a it was a really good program for them, and they liked it so much that these demonstrators, well beyond their anticipated service life, were still operating. Right. So ha- how do you amortize a hundred eighty million dollar drone that's been working for like ten years? And, yeah,
1: and it's a prototype for the MQ four Triton program, right? Right. Sort right. Of a, a progenitor.
2: Yeah. yeah. So the MQ four yeah mp 4 c triton is set to ioc sometime in 2021 but this is this is it looks the same but it's a different airframe with like different sensors and slightly less expensive but again it's like you know there was a great duffelbog headline it was just like uh uh Navy drone shot down two days before its retirement. (laughs) I mean, so, so, uh, I don't know how well the IRGC was aware of how old this thing was and what exactly they were, uh, you know, the, what the mission was when, when it, or was it a target of opportunity or, you know, so so it's all that really confusing. So, so 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 do
0: they fly around at high altitude? What I mean, what what's their operating envelope?
2: Yes. Oh, that's uh, so so that's interesting. It's interesting that you should say that because the the Global Hawk that the Air Force flies and the MQ-4C Triton that the Navy flies have looked the same, but they have two really really different missions. So um, the Global Hawk it hangs out about sixty five thousand uh, feet, just really high up there, and provides. Uh, it's, it's really an efficient airframe, uh, and it's up there. You can fly for like 24, 32-ish hours, uh, depending on the conditions. Um, the Navy's one is a little different because, um, uh, um, you know, for, for folks who don't know, like Navy maritime uh, aircraft uh, tend to fly like those big parabolic waves, right? So it's just like we're up here and we see something that's interesting, so we're going to go real low and see what's going on with our sensors and then fly real high. So uh, the MQ-4C Triton is probably going to be doing some of that. That's probably one of the reasons it's taken so long to get into the fleet right now because uh, it's busted its IOC date a couple times is because it, too, will fly those big parabolic, um, um, help me out here, Ward, what would you call that? Mission parameters. Flight, flight or, path. Or, yeah, profile. Yeah. Profile, yeah. 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 So, um, so it's unclear as to what the RQ-4A that... The navy was operating, was flying. So, it, it, is it an asset that hangs out at sixty-five thousand feet, or was it doing one of those kind of parabolic waves, like looking back and forth? We don't know that. We so we, we don't. Do
0: we know what kind of SAM shot it down? Was it a man uh, pad? Was it a?
2: Uh, it's. Um,
1: an Iranian it's, version of the SA-3. That is, is correct. That okay. Is so, there, so it's a strategic SAM. Yes. Thank you, Bill. So yeah. fixed SAM site. <laughs> right. It's a fixed a, SAM site. Fixed a, SAM yeah. site. So and the, the Iranians was... immediately said it was in their airspace. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the U.S. has said, no, no, it was in international airspace out over the kind of northern Gulf of Oman, Strait of Hormuz area. Uh, from what you guys have reported and uh, got, got from the U.S. government, it. it Seems to clearly be an international airspace. It was like thirty something kilometers from the coast, well outside the twelve nautical mile limit. The,
2: the difference between where the Iranians say uh, the BAMS was versus where the U.S. said the BAMS was is something like twelve nautical miles. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's very. It's, so it's one of those things where it's just like how much how much tr- evidence does the U.S. have to prove its point versus how much evidence do the Iranians have to prove its point. So one of the other things that. Uh, is kind of muddying the waters again. And so uh, I, I think we're finding a lot of the times um, in terms of the, um, what we're finding a lot of times in terms of uh, these Iranian narratives is they put just enough spin on the ball to to go and muddy the waters and make you ask questions, right? So there's, there's, there's less clarity as to, well, you know, it looks like it's really cut and dry. Actually, it's like this. Right. And so they'll they'll go and do that. Uh, And so we've been talking to a lot of uh, Iranian analysts. And one of the things we always hear is, is like, well, who 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 stands to gain? Right. And then ultimately it comes down to a really elaborate conspiracy theory about the Mossad or, you know, uh, like KSA or uh, uh, Saudi Arabian folks or UAE. So it's, it's really difficult to, to find ground truth, right? And sort of like, you know, it's tough for folks who primarily deal with Americans, like, you know, kind of getting to that point where you're kind of short circuiting that, that line of, uh, of, of, of evidence. And you start messing with, like, well, this is true or this is not true and start getting into different interpretations of the facts. And it's, it's, it's uh, We find that traditionally is a hard uh, uh, situation for an American brain to handle because, you know, if you have to divide it into two things, things are true or things are not true. And then when it gets muddy, we're not – we don't do all that well.
1: Yeah, and all this happens – and w- you and I chatted about this maybe a week ago or so. All this happens at a time when uh, it's been, what, 15, 16 months since the Pentagon has had an official press briefing? And so this is the kind of thing that, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago, there would have been a series of press briefings. The chairman would have gotten up, you know, in the Pentagon and with charts and maps and, uh, you know, perhaps the J-2 would have provided some of the intelligence background. But there would have been a public press briefing from the Pentagon on a number of these events that have happened over the last, you know, couple of weeks or months with the Iranians, right?
2: Uh, that's 100% true. Uh, so so
1: how are you guys getting stories from from the Pentagon?
2: Well, it's it's kind of hit and miss, right? So we we all have you know, there's the the official folks that we have to go through to the front door and like go and ask for statements from uh and try to get the on the same page as everyone else and then you know i mean we've been doing this for a long time so we've got sourcing in other places that can confirm stuff for us but uh i think the larger point is is no there's not a unified public you know relation strategy when it comes to sort of talking about this um so far the only thing that we've really had uh in in terms of officialdom there was the the Sent com uh, Air Forces guy. Um, uh, uh, it's a lieutenant general. His name is escaping me at the moment, but did like a read a prepared ninety second statement uh, to the Pentagon press corps from VTC. didn't Didn't take questions. Like you know, from th- the whole thing was over in like four minutes. Yeah, uh, probably and, from the
1: Kayak over yeah. in Al Udeed. Probably from the Kayak in Al
2: Udeed, and said like, okay, this is our statement. We will email this statement to you later. But then no, no Q&A, no Q&A, no additional sort of questions in in terms of, you know, what this thing was all about um, and more evidence as to the RQ4A and where it was and stuff like that. The other thing is they turned off its transponders. So, like, again, this is another thing that the analysts say that when we keep, you know, asking about it is, well, you know, the, the example was where the, you know, Kennedy goes to Charles de Gaulle and says, hey, the Cubans have missiles. We have all of this, you know, U2 intelligence that we can show you. And Charles de is like, no, I don't need to see it. The word of, you know, the American government is good enough for me, right? Mm. So uh, I think you take that and then you take all of the European allies sort of questioning, well, is it this? Is it that? And the I think the Iranians are good enough to put enough spin on what's going on is to kind of salt any other sort of explanation uh, with well, who else would stand to benefit, right? And, and, and raises more questions as to sort of the, the credibility of the U.S. story, which like, oh, by the way, we, I have no reason to believe anything that the U.S. is telling us in terms of the information that they're putting out is inaccurate. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've had a pretty good relationship with, with everybody up and down the line as, as far as giving us the information that they can. The problem is, is, you know, I, it's not that I don't believe the information. It's just that convincing especially like sort of U.S. allies and people with interest in the region of, of that, of actually, you know, sort of U.S. case of events is actually getting a lot harder yeah. um, for reasons that I will leave it to other people to determine.
0: So let's talk about the CONOPS piece. Um, so we got to the brink here um, a couple days ago, and the president pulled back. Um, and But now it seems like we're back to, you know, one more time, and we're going to, I guess, use the word obliterate you. Um, so I have some experience with CONOPS in that region, um, you know, in places like Chabahar and uh, Bushir, And those kinds of places, not to mention going downtown Tehran, come to mind, and how we'd have executed circa, you know, late 80s through the 90s, um, you know, would have been sort of your standard SEAD rollback, followed by, you know, precision strikes against SAM sites and communications nodes and that sort of thing. But it would have been very surgical. And then before that, I think of uh, when I was a midshipman, we woke up one morning and Desert One had happened. Um, and obviously, that was uh, not a, a, a great event in the history of the U.S. military. And that sort of coalesced the idea of how do we do joint ops? How do we get our special operations act together? So the idea of going against Iran proper in the last 50 years or track record um, is not great. Further, if you go back into, you know, since biblical times, we need to segment The Arab world from Persia, in terms of what is the culture that is Iran. And I think we paint with a very broad brush. And it seems like when the president's talking, there's not a whole lot of understanding of the difference between Iran and Iraq and Syria. Um, So I I myself am concerned that we would uh, stumble into something that uh, uh, we think is limited. And the president was asked what the end state would be, and he was. Saying we don't need a, you know, we don't need no stinking end state. I'm paraphrasing there, but uh, you know, we don't need an exit strategy. We don't, you know, this kind of reckless talk it concerns me, um, because as we saw in Syria, a single strike um, doesn't really do anything in terms of the long-term outcomes. So let's say Iran does something else like more limpet mines or, or is provocative with with small boats against our our combatants, to the degree that. Everybody finally says, "Okay, we got to do something." Sam, what do we think that would be um, if we had to guess uh, what the next step militarily might be?
2: Uh, well, um, I think one of the I think the I think the most obvious solution that has to do with you know kind of the traditional kinetic response for something like this, which would be you know target surface-to-air missile sites, target communication nodes, just like you said. I mean, that's a pretty uh, typical commensurate response for um messing i mean depending on what 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 the attack would be i mean if it would be something the equivalent of like you know the drone shoot down i mean that that seems commensurate uh there have been some reports of some uh offensive cyber operations which are you know as of yet unconfirmed uh which would make more sense. But what
0: did they do? Take down a power grid? What, uh, well, what, that's what did they do? That's why
2: it's unclear. Uh, so I think the the reports, I think the New York Times had some good stuff on this. And essentially they were, you know, it had to do with its sort of uh, combat networks, and sensor nodes and networks. You know, uh, it was a pretty aggressive attack from, again, what's been reported, but nothing's been sort of specified. Um you know, so and then it goes into like, well, there's this brand new tool that we didn't have, you know, during Desert One and, and, you know, the Iran-Iraq tanker wars, which was, you know, we have the ability to get in their networks and really mess with them, which isn't something that we've done a lot with. I mean, I think the most famous cyber offensive attack was, you know, Olympic Games, the Stuxnet one, where the U.S. got together with Israel, um, according to uh, David Sanger, actually did a lot of stuff on this in The New York Times, and, um, got together with Israel and introduced software into the Siemens uh, centrifuges that Iran was using to um, work on their uh, uh, atomic program and was able to essentially tell the machine controllers of the centrifuges to shake themselves apart. Right. So that was a pretty slick operation. Uh, And the only reason it you know, people found out about it is because somehow that code got back into the wild. And a bunch of German guys are like, why does this thing want to go to Iran? And why does this thing want to go to centrifuges? We don't understand this thing. And they were able to make a circumstantial case on how a state actor, probably the U S and Israel were able to develop that technology. Um, so that was a very specific instance, but like, um, Alex Gibney actually has a really good documentary about this called zero days, which I highly recommend everybody. Like if you want to understand sort of what the, um, uh, how, f- what a cyber conflict, offensive cyber operation would do. And it's, it's a couple of years old now, but it gives you a real good sense of sort of the, the power that the U S would could wield if we wanted to in this. Um, so that's something. Um, so I think on one hand you have uh, something like a cyber attack. And on the other hand, you have something like a kinetic engagement where you take out, you know, part of the, their infrastructure to make war, how much of an effect does that actually have in iran
0: well the other thing about it is the optics of it right sure. so how much of fe- an effect does it have in the heartland in, in terms of the, the you know the, the president appearing to be tough against these threats you know if you go well we didn't do- drop any bombs and you don't have any uh, footage of hornets launching off the front end of the lincoln but you know they didn't have any control of their air conditioning in downtown tehran for a while Right. You know, I mean, this is the whole cyber world as as insidious and as effective as it could be in this 21st century as it could be. Um, I don't know if it works
1: in the political public relations sphere. Right. It's hard to because you can't. Yeah. You you don't want to be too public about some of these capabilities. Uh, Some of the things that I've also heard is that uh, they made some ones and zeros in bank accounts of uh, supreme leader, et cetera, disappear. So that can be, you know, for those that are. Uh, that that rely on having you know the power of the purse uh, to keep he- keep control in Tehran. You know, if you start making their uh, their Swiss bank, he account, thought he was going to go to Turks know. and Caicos. Yeah. And now all that money's gone. <laughs> now no vac- vacation. Now his vacation is going to be in Bushir. <laughs> <laughs> Um
2: I mean, ultimately, I, I I hear the beach in Jask right now is really nice. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, it comes down to like you know what is the you know what is Iran Iran's uh, end state is is pretty clear they want they want people to stop messing with their money uh and they have a lot of levers they can pull they can go back to the table in terms of you know the atomic agreement they can they they, there's a lot of things that they can do i think uh, in a lot of potential you know negotiating things what do we what does the u.s have and then it becomes a a lot less clear we you know we can give up sanctions that's cool all right we have that but what do we want like, what, what does the administration want? And I don't think that position has been really articulated, you know. Um,
1: yeah, no nuclear weapon for Iran. And they didn't like the previous deal, which, you know, put that uh, – delayed that at least 10 years into the future. Sure. Uh, so, to, yeah, it's kind of interesting How, to see.
2: You know, and I think there's some there's, – there's a lot of good scholarship out there. Uh, actually, the Soufan Center at a uh, D.C. Uh, put out a really good paper out in May – uh, calling the I uh, call the Iranian regional playbook that we've been reading a lot now a- anybody who wants to get like smart uh, as quickly as possible I, I recommend you reading that uh, that white paper because it essentially is like okay guys I mean like you know the the bottom line is you know the the atomic program the atomic weapons program is just one thing that uh, Iran can use to at the negotiating table when they're really actually looking to, fund these 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 proxies that they can keep their hands off of and and kind of assert regional dominance through you know like the Quds Force organization and through you know through IRGC through folks like the Houthis and Hezbollah and all these other organizations that are out there that are kind of tied to this sort of Iranian worldview that they can go and like you know eventually have their influence go further and wider without having to get into a conventional war because you know I think I mean they here's one thing they're not dumb in Tehran yeah. they know that if they stood up for a, you know any kind of conventional fight they would just get swagged right and so you know they they've under, they they understand that they're they're in their best position playing asymmetrically and then playing world politics to you know get the most advantageous negotiating position that they can and again what they want is relatively clear please allow us to make money and do our thing and, you know, leave us alone for our own, you know, sort of regional plans. And then what's the end state for the U S and that's a, that's a big question that I, I, you know, isn't, I wish was, was more clear so we could kind of better articulate that.
0: So what, what's the vibe in the building right now? Is there, you know, and can you tell uh, when something's about to happen uh, just by, you know, in your normal course of, you know, you guys are heads down in the Pentagon press offices um, is is there something that can cue you that you know something's about to go on? Well,
2: I don't want to give away our best tricks, but, uh, <laughs> without giving away your best tricks. <laughs> no, I mean there's a, I mean there's there, I mean there's vibes. I mean like uh, I'll, I'll you know I'll I, I said this before and I'll say it again. The Pentagon press corps is best press corps in D.C. Um, they're, they do a really good job of uh, we do a really good job of kind of supporting each other and helping us out. And so there's there's a there's a level of groupthink there in terms of like hey this is happening this is not but again this is this is different from um you know the the last time we had sort of like a big regional tension i think that had to do with like uh, syria and the chemical weapons last year uh and we all had a brief and we were there and now uh general mckenzie then lieutenant general mckenzie got in front of uh, the pentagon press corps on a saturday and was just like okay uh in response to these syrian actions uh uh, these French aircraft and these US aircraft and use this, you know, these missiles and these, uh, you know, this tomahawk strikes and this, it's the first operational deployment of the JASM ER and then all these French guys did all this French stuff and, uh, you know, this is, this is what we did and this was a response and this is what's happening. Uh, and there was a lot more communication. Now we're just sort of like, I mean, it, we're talking, you know, I guess we're we're half hour into this. We're talking about Iran. I mean, like, oh, by the way, we have a new sac- acting Secretary of Defense. <laughs> who, brings, yep. who Who brings with him a whole new sort of set of infrastructure and a chief of staff and a public affairs person and on and on and on and on. So we're, Do
0: you have any sense, have you heard anecdotally, like things are going to get better? Or has he been in place long enough I to mean, even know? I
2: mean, you know, when did we, f- it was last Tuesday? It was last tuesday when we found out that Shanahan was out so no real indication uh, uh sec- acting secretary esper uh was by the press uh by the press room um this week last week i can't remember real quick just a kind of real quick like high. just buy. a walk through yeah, yeah, yeah just okay. like a high buy so i mean i mean we haven't get, been getting briefings you know at all I mean, the last person to use the, the uh, press room in the Pentagon um, for a public event, I think, was Gene Simmons. Yeah, that's, that's what we're hearing <laughs> the, That's amazing. The bass player and lead singer of a rock and roll band called Kiss that was popular about 40 years ago. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, before that, I think it was Gerard Butler. That's not fair. They did the budget stuff. They did the budget rollout um, in March, February. Sorry, I'm not great on dates today, gang. Uh, but the... Um,
1: but it's been a while. The point is, yeah, you know, there's so, a lot, lot mean, going on and without without public briefings, you know, to the press corps. Uh,
2: so, right. So we all don't get the information at the same time and it comes out in dribs and drabs. Like, you know, um, we 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 have a very specific lane and like, you know, we'll break news on things that we we're good at, like ship movements and understanding stuff like that. You know, I mean, you'll you'll have The Post and The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times all fight for, you know, kind of the policy angle. You know, and it's a lot of coordination um, between uh, White House reporters and Pentagon reporters right now. I think if you've seen a lot of coverage right now, it's it's a lot of White House stuff. The White House writers are the ones, the first one with the Pentagon person and like on the back end of those stories. Okay. And I mean, there's a lot of good stuff coming out. But again, you know, it's, it's all inconsistent. And so we are a little bit of a loss. Well, what's the message? What is the clear, concise message from the United States in terms of What's going on with these situations, and, and that's that that just hasn't been really clearly articulated yet.
0: Yes. But I, I don't understand. Sure, maybe I do understand. <laughs> um, wh- why why the the suppression of of information from the top, right? And you think back into Desert Storm One, um, particularly I think was the heyday of the briefings there in the the, the DoD press room, you well, know, Schwarzkopf but, and so forth. Yeah, is this it, a, is this a Commander in Chief? thing is is this uh, are they trying to read the tea leaves of the president and they're just like look better to just stay off the air because if you're doing it right it actually has a great effect are they afraid of misspeaking is this just risk communications I on steroids I, I don't get why they're not talking uh, I
2: think I mean I think this is this is reflective of sort of the larger situation that we've been in for the last 18 24 months you know kind of reporting on the Department of Defense which has to do with um, a lot of this tenor was set by secretary mattis who wasn't particularly you know interested in sort of explaining a lot of the 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 stuff that he did in the building so that's part of it and i think that's part of that's a holdover from that uh and i think part of it is that a lot of information comes out of the white house that's you know the, that that isn't briefed previously to um the folks in the building and uh you'll you'll hear policy made pretty quickly, you know, through social media channels or whatever um before folks in the building have an opportunity to i mean they'll hear about it first a lot of times from twitter. Yeah. So so I mean I guess the thing you could probably extend that back and say, "Hey, is there a coherent policy in terms of uh, you know, what we're trying to accomplish through these actions?" And I think the answer is, is I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know who who's responsible for speaking. I think part of that has to do with sort of the leadership fluctuations in the Pentagon, right? Who who can stand up and say, "Hey, I'm the person who owns this information." When we're on our second acting,
0: who is the DoD spokesperson now? I can't even. I, I couldn't person.
2: tell you. I couldn't tell you. No, not, not since. Uh, <laughs> These are franchise players um, back in the day. We well, all knew who they were. Well, it was it was Dana White, and then it was Charlie Summer. And then after that, it is—I don't even know. Uh, that's bad. That's that is okay, bad. so. That's very telling. Right? That's, 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 that's <laughs> the head of our
1: news organization uh, doesn't doesn't I mean, know. Yeah,
2: I know who's in charge of the navies. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. But um, so so yeah. So not to not to get into a whole sort of. I, I think I think a lot more people have been a lot more articulate about sort of the situation that's going on, you know, relative to any part of the administration versus, you know, it it talking about itself. But I mean, you know, it's it's like we're we're not hearing a whole lot of information getting out there. And I think, you know, sort of from our perspective, that is, okay, well, you know, that leaves a lot of gray area and opportunity for people to fill that in with Whatever is available. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So one more question about Iran, and then let's move sure. on to a couple other topics because we're running out of time. Sure. But um, so there were conflicting reports about whether the president turned off the strike against Iran in response to the the uh, drone, drone shootdown. Sure. Did that happen airborne, or were the the aircraft about to launch? Have you guys heard any more uh, on that?
2: It's it, you know uh, I've heard both. I've heard both. That, Okay. That I've heard that aircraft were were in the air, and then the aircraft were about to launch. I mean. You know, depending on where you're coming from, it's relatively short distances. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, how wide is... I mean, so if you're coming from a land-based side on the UAE, KSA
0: side...
1: Yeah, these are... 20-30 20-30 minute flights. Yeah, right? yeah. These are not, uh, or if you're if coming, that, I mean, five, you know, this, it's, it's, it's not a five or you could hour just be alpha doing strike.
0: Cyclic ops right, and they'll right. just say, oh, we were prepared to strike at any right. time. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean,
2: yeah, I, I mean, we didn't get too hung up on that just because it's, it's not like you know, it's not like a B two strike coming out of White Men or anything like that. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, all <laughs> right, well, we've been in the air for eighteen hours. I guess <laughs> we got to go really home. We got to go home now, right?
1: So yeah. yeah.
2: So it's, I mean, if it's if it's the difference of sort of fifteen minutes, the Doctor Strange love scenario. Yeah. Exactly.
1: I would I would also point out before we move on from Iran that that uh we reposted or republicized a couple of proceedings articles from 1989. One was by Ron O'Rourke on the tanker war, and another one was by Captain Perkins on Operation Praying Mantis. He had a series of them, the air side, the surface side, et cetera. Uh, and so what's old is new again. Um, yeah. But if you want to know what some of the options could be or, or how operations could look in a conflict with Iran, we've been there before, late 80s. Uh, we had a tanker war. We, you know, The U.S. Navy... Uh, reflagged tankers and escorted them through the Strait of Hormuz, and we did some uh, special operations and surface uh, operations against Iranian uh, oil platforms, with, with, which they had armed and put, uh, you know, observation points on. So some of that stuff is available in proceedings, and uh, you know, you want to go back and read. Because um, because all of that is relevant again. Yeah, absolutely. A six has dropped Rockeye. That was uh, the yep. heyday of and, the A six uh, doing uh, surface ASUW. surface ships did five inch guns uh, against um, uh, personnel on board those oil platforms with uh, you know air burst weapons and yeah that, and then they put marines on board. So some interesting stuff.
2: Uh, no, absolutely. I just read. Uh, um, and that's so, before there was a
1: the fifth fleet. That, right. that, that, in fact, Admiral Tony Les, who I was later aide
0: for when he was Air Land, was in charge of that operation. Wow.
2: No, I uh, I read, uh, uh, my old man actually gave me a copy of this book uh, called uh, The Gulf. Uh, and it was this, uh, I can't remember who did it, but it's kind of like this, uh, it was a retired Navy captain wrote it. But the opening scene was about an FFG that gets hit by like a like a harpoon or an Exocet missile, you know, sort of doing, you know, Operation Praying Mana style stuff. And it was just like, oh, my God.
0: Is that a David Poyer book? It might. It might <laughs> be That's a David Poyer book. I, it,
2: I Like I gotta tell you, it was like it was chilling. It was terrifying. Like, You know, just sort of the DC problem that they had to deal with. Um, so, anyway, hmm. as an interjection, I, I recommend reading the first 20 pages and getting really scared.
1: Uh. <laughs> well, let's move on to a, a couple of other recent stories that you got that are coming out from uh, USNI News. Uh, Megan Eckstein uh, went out to uh, the Baltic and was uh, an observer for Baltops uh, 2019. At- big, big NATO uh, European exercise. And the first uh, time that uh, the re. Energized or reestablished, Second Fleet took command of uh, of an exercise across the pond.
2: That's right. Um, So Admiral Lewis, uh, um, he uh, uh, Vice Admiral Lewis uh, of Second Fleet, um, led and his staff of about 200 people led the 2019 yeah 2019 Ball Tops, and Megan was out there for that. And so uh, it's always great for us. We want to get you know so any Navy fans out there uh, in in Podcast Land, uh, yeah, we want to come see your ship. You know, we got we got a little bit of travel money we're always we're always happy to go out there and we're always happy to get out um, you know with the fleet whenever we can it's nice to get out of DC
1: and so this For was an sure. exercise of uh, what is it like 18 countries and 50 ships uh, and eight or nine thousand people if you wrap it all up the number of people on those ships and aircraft and uh, it takes place in the in the Baltic oh, sure. you know with uh, Lith- some landings <sighs> in Estonia Lithuania Poland sure.
2: Oh, right. So, so yeah, so Baltops is the big, it uh, used to be the big six fleet exercise and it was a big amphibious thing. Uh, it was a, the, it was kind of capped off by uh, a big amphibious landing. Um, and it's a, it's an opportunity for a lot of sort of kind of NATO adjacent folks uh, to come in like Finland and Sweden uh, to, to go and participate in, in some of these sort of larger exercises and it's getting more and more complex, right? So when you had the 2018, new national uh, uh, defense strategy come out of the Pentagon, uh, that, that that big Mattis document and sort of uh, ushered in, you know, at least the language of uh, great power competition into the Pentagon, uh, you started to see a lot more emphasis on uh, Russia and Russian capabilities. And if you're talking Russian capabilities in the maritime, we're not talking aircraft carriers, we're talking submarines, right? Submarines and mining and, and um, uh, a lot of those naval skills that they maintained. Uh, since the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, more so than their surface stuff. And so Baltops has kind of, uh, you know, since then has kind of taken a little bit more of a change in tenor uh, for more high-end operations, more countries, more ships, more complex evolutions. And that's, you know, um, particularly telling when you're bringing sec- Second Fleet into the mix. So Second Fleet uh, stood up last year as, um, you know, the the mission is has been stated as to, you know, have more of a high-end based out of Norfolk and in conjunction with the the, um, Admiral Lewis wears a NATO hat for, uh, I'm gonna get this wrong, but joint, I think it's Joint Maritime Operations NATO or Norfolk, uh, which is uh, sort of the NATO uh, East Coast um, component. Uh, And so essentially you're looking at uh, kind of an unbroken line of command from the East Coast all the way up into the Barents, right? And the idea is these guys do high-end training for high-end operations against a, a pretty uh, capable foe, and that's the you know sort of the idea of Second Fleet. As as in terms of are they picking up the old sort of uh, boundaries from like the southern point of Greenland and you know, north of the Caribbean. And, and they're, they've been a little kind of fuzzy on that. But in terms of like, hey, we, we want to fly in like a C2 element that can come in uh, and do some command and controls of some some high-end warfare. A lot of this has been largely to be defined or or, or less than defined yet. I mean, it's still a relatively new command. Uh, but this is kind of their first opportunity to, to, to do their first show uh, since they stood up IOC in um, just a little bit earlier before the exercise, just a, just a few weeks before the exercise, they IOC'd. and so this is kind of their first big uh, exercise that they're sort of in charge of. And there's more countries participating. I mean, you know, I mean, the Turks were there, the Polish were there, the Estonians were there, the Latvians were there, the Lithuanians were there, uh, the Finns were there, uh, the Swedes were there. Megan got to climb on a, a Visby class Corvette, which is cool. They're made out of carbon fiber. Who knew? They're only. Really Display six hundred and thirty tons. I, I'm I'm very excited to 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 read her stuff on that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it was a great exercise, and it's a lot different uh, than it was um, in in previous years, mainly because of this you know new emphasis on great power competition.
1: Yeah, well, fifteen years ago, when I was the naval attache in Moscow, the Russians were part of Baltops, right? right. For years for for probably five or six years running. They were part of all ball tops. And, right, and let so out. it wasn't very complex, and there it was a smaller exercise. Uh, and they also, of course, sent a spy ship out to spy on the exercise, which they were participating in. But now the Russians are <laughs> sure. not part of ball tops. They are decidedly no longer welcome. Sure. And uh, I'm sure that they had uh, you know, a, an AGI collecting on the exercise this year. Probably no. watched it very closely.
2: No, Megan, what, what did Megan see? Uh, Megan saw a Megan saw frigate out. Um, because yeah. when she, when she was out when when she was out uh for RIMPAC um, last time she saw uh, one of the Russian Oodaloids and she saw she saw a Russian frigate too she was on the gravely for about 4 days uh and she saw god bless all right sorry sorry podcast folks I can't, I can't remember you got you got to read it you got to read it news.usandnight.org uh <laughs> you know uh, uh slash ball balltops 2019 we've got we're going to have a ton of stuff Megan, Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff yeah uh, megan's got about uh i mean, i think megan's uh, I think I think we have 13 stories planned, uh, and then three videos, and then a couple other things. But, so, you know, we're trying to get every piece of the buffalo working. Here <laughs> here. <laughs> so um, stay tuned. So, yeah, more stuff coming up from uh, News.News.net. Right.
1: Well, uh, another story that I thought uh, many of our readers and listeners would be interested in is uh, that the final request for a proposal from the Navy is out on the FFGX. Yes, it is. Yes, it uh, so is. So this is big news, and we got uh, what are the four companies that are now vying for that uh, platform, and, um, and what are some of the capabilities that the Navy says it needs to have? Sure. So the FFGX is uh, kind of a, a
2: follow-on to you know a, the Navy small surface combatant after the literal combat ship, right? And so a lot of this, uh, the impetus for this has been driven uh, by the late um, Senator John McCain, um, who was not an LCS fan and really pushed the Navy hard. To develop a new uh, frigate, a new guided missile frigate, uh, so the Navy is doing a uh, rapid requirements, um, a rapid requirements uh, evaluation uh, to go and determine this, and so they've been working on finding a ship that is already under construction, right? So uh, that opens up the options to a lot of like European and allies frigates. So the the four potential contenders. That were or the, initially, the Navy offered planning contracts to five um, shipyards to go and, and evaluate what it would take to go and alter their designs for FFGX. So that was uh, Lockheed Martin with the Freedom Class LCS design, Austal with the Independence Class, um, Bath Ironworks Works with uh, modification to the Navantia F100 that the Spain Span- Sp- Spanish, pardon me, the Spanish Armada uses. Um, the Fincanteri, uh with the FREM, the Italian version of the FREM, which is their multi-role uh, frigate that uh, the French and the Italians use. And then HII with a mystery entry, uh, which is probably either the national security cutter for the Coast Guard or the... Uh, a variant on the DDG 1000, probably, or I'm sorry, not 1000, uh, DDG 51, uh, Arleigh Burke class, hmm. uh, either way. Um, so some of the capabilities they're talking about is a, is a lot different from the LCS. So first of all, they're talking about a baseline, uh, 32 VLS cells, um, for the, for the whole. So that's a lot more than the LCS has, which is right now zero. Um, you're talking about uh, uh, ESER radar, um, which is a pretty credible solid state um, uh, electronic uh, scanning array. Uh, that's going to be also the same radar that's going to be on the follow on Fords, uh, starting with the JFK. Oh, no, I'm sorry. starting with uh, the enterprise. Uh, so that's the, so you have a lot more of a air search um, capability. Uh, some of the other stuff that's going to be on there that's really interesting is Uh, anti-ship missiles, there's going to be a lot of connectivity, right? So there's a big CEC link, um, cooperative engagement capability, which is a big data pipe. And so if you kind of read between the lines in a lot of the um, RFPs and uh, other stuff that they're putting out there, they're looking at, uh, it it looks like it could potentially be a really important um, command and control node. For uh, unmanned vehicles uh, that are coming along the pipe, so there's going to be a lot of more unmanned surface combatants, um, and uh, you know, sort of large, as large as like a Corvette, um, and as small as kind of like a 11 meter rib, plus the all the stuff underwater that we know we know less about, uh, and then you know, and there's going to be a pretty uh, pretty intense ASW capability, which is something that I think everybody thinks that you know the navy is in short supply of yeah right now. including
1: sh-60 helicopter has to be uh the ship has to be capable of carrying an sh-60 oh, right. and, oh, and, yes, and an mq8 a, right
2: right yeah mq8 and a, a, a mh-60 so it's going to have a pretty pretty decent sized uh, aviation debt so um uh megan megan did the story i think on friday when the thing broke so we have a slide on there that kind of um, as of that was current as of January for the things that they're looking at. So moving forward, so the competition is pretty much open to everybody right now. And so one of the things that I think uh, some of our um, Commonwealth fans, uh, you know, in Australia and in New Zealand and the UK were a little disappointed, and in Canada were a little disappointed about is uh, BAE Systems um, is not going to compete, is not going to meet the requirements of having a hull in production to go and compete the Type 26. Uh, which is a, a ASW frigate that um, the UK is developing right now that the Canadians are also getting. And also the, uh, the Kiwis and also the Aussies are all going to be fielding this 3,000-ton um, you know, combatant that's going to be swung very much towards the ASW mission, which is something that like, you know, the Brits have ebbed and flowed in some of their capabilities uh, over the last 10, 15 years. But one thing that they've never kind of given up is they're still really, really good at surface ASW.
1: Yeah, and uh, Norman Friedman, uh, who writes uh, World Naval Developments, wrote about the Type 26 as a potential contender uh, for the FFGX. I think it was in the uh, April or May no, a recent issue of, uh, of Proceedings. So that's a pretty good piece, uh, Norman, you know, analyzing that uh, that particular. Send platform. it to Napsy. I mean, yeah.
2: BAE BA, would love it if you send it to to NAFSI, i I got to tell you, like our our London correspondent. You know, got us that news. Uh, I guess I guess we ran that story Friday, Monday, maybe. Yeah, I going to I to say we ran that story Monday. Yeah, so I mean, I think I think a lot of people agree with Norman, and a lot, I think I, more than one person came up to to me and read that column. I was like, oh man, that would make a lot of sense, right? Right. So so, um, so
0: what is, what happens next programmatically? There's a down select, and when when is the contract uh, awarded, or how, how does this work? Uh,
2: so I think uh, they're they're looking at it. all oh, right right. So the Navy's going to pick a final hull. Um, Probably by the end of the year. Um, you know, they've been a little. Uh, they don't have like a specific date, but um, I want to say that they're probably. I mean, they've done a lot of work on the front end here, so they're probably going to pick something by the end of the year, and then we'll then we'll know the first. Uh, I think the contract is for the first the, the lead ship. It's going to take a while, um, and this is ultimately for twenty, and so the first ship is going to cost like one point three billion ish dollars right so it's i mean i mean these are not inexpensive ships uh and then follow on they're they're trying to get it down to about you know 800 850 million or so per per hall with gfe included uh i'm sorry government furnished equipment like radars and stuff like that in addition to the hall um so uh they they're looking to gosh sorry gang i forgot when but they're looking to cut steel as soon as like 2020 2021 and then it's going to take about six years or so for the first one to actually like float.
1: Wow! So, so late late twenty twenties.
2: So wow. I mean, as far as ship shipbuilding goes, yeah, that, I mean this is pretty quick. But you know, yeah, uh, not
1: not by World War II shipbuilding standards, yeah. but by, by by recent U.S. Navy shipbuilding I mean, standards. These it things could, are complicated. It takes, a yeah, while. Complicated. It takes ten yeah. years. It takes yeah.
2: The, it, the Oscar Austin like had a bunch of electronics and wires that got zapped. That thing's going to be in the yard until twenty twenty two.
1: Nice. Wow. All right. Um, Let's see. Uh, I wanted to point out a couple things for our... um, Uh, our readers and listeners. Uh, So we've gone through um, a few uh, essay contests recently for proceedings. So the Coast Guard essay contest winners will be in the August issue of proceedings, and we're working on that issue right now. Uh, We just selected the winners of uh, this year's Enlisted Professionals uh, essay contest uh, we had 209 entries for the enlisted essay contest, which was up from 88 last year. So uh, enormous response. And uh, I just notified the three winners. Uh, one was uh, Navy IS, an intel specialist. One is a cryptologic technician. And one is a marine sergeant. Uh, so uh, those will be sprinkled into issues of proceedings coming up probably September, October, November. And we'll be recognizing the winners at a, um, a recognition event probably at West uh, in 2020 in early March. That's normally when we have the enlisted uh, prize winners come out and uh, and be recognized. Uh, and for all of our listeners and for our readers, uh, thank you for making our, our website so popular. We've talked about this a little bit, but uh, we're, consi- we're seeing uh, for the first 25 days or so of the month of June, uh, incredible double di- double digit growth uh, for proceedings in Naval History Magazine, and that is uh, just, just wonderful to see. So, uh, thanks. And USNI and, News also and has USNI had a, news a really good is a 30 day run. What, your, oh,
2: yeah. We're
1: you guys are up like, above a 1. million. 1.2 million page views in Some, the last 30 days. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, fantastic.
2: I usually check the site more when we're less busy. <laughs>
0: obsess about Google yeah. Analytics. Exactly. Exactly. No, and, but the bottom line is uh, the impact is really uh, on the upswing, and thanks is. to our. Our audience for uh, for reading, sharing, posting, you know, and consuming, stuff, you know, right, and so right. we'll keep we'll keep working hard on getting the stuff that yep. they need.
1: And if you are in the uh, DC local area, uh, seventeen July, the winners w- of the uh, CNO Naval History Essay Contest will be recognized at the Navy Yard, at the National Museum of the Navy, uh, starting at five thirty PM, um, and uh, CNO Richardson will be there to present the awards uh, in person. Uh, So that should be a very cool event. Uh, Again, if you're in the D.C. area. And you have uh, access to the government. Facility. Right. So you can, if you don't have a government, ac- you know, a retiree card or active duty, a CAC card, uh, it's a little harder, but not impossible to get on the Navy Yard. And you can do that through the usni.org website, go to events, and you can sign up for that event. And you can attend. Uh, if you are a active duty member or a government employee or retiree, it's super easy to drive on to the Navy Yard uh, and come to that event. It is open to the public. Uh, so again, 17 July, I think starts at uh, 1730. c so, you know, Richardson will be there and more information to come and you can find it on our website. So and our current that,
0: batch of interns will be there.
1: That's very cool. That's yes, right. That's one, yes. yeah, one more and thing. Our uh, second
0: block just showed up on Monday and they're already heads down creating content. So keep your eye on our various properties for that. Um, They have big shoes to fill or the bar bar is very high after last block with Midshipman second class. Ezra Haddock wrote that piece about parades and it did uh, 18,000 page views. So it's, uh, you know, we got some varsity talent here uh, as our
1: interns. Really cool to see. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, that wraps up this week's show of the podcast. And uh, next week is going to be 4th of July. um, We may have a Naval History uh, guest next week. We're working on that right now. Uh, And until then, remember... Victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.
0: City's podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com.